From 1914 to 1918, it was a human catastrophe known as World War I. And when you look at the reasons why World War I breaks out, it really is a culmination of imperialism, militarism, the alliance system, and nationalism that all countries were participating in at this time. The assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand is going to be the powder keg event that really uh, starts off the war, but there are so many facets that come into play here before the war even breaks out. With the development of the alliance system, imperialism conflicts that had occurred before World War I between the major European powers and nationalism, they had the military background to carry out a global conflict. Now, I want to bring you to an acronym called MAIN. So that's Militarism, Alliances, Imperialism, and Nationalism. Those are the main long-term causes for the outbreak of World War I. So let's turn our attention to militarism. What that means is it's an increase in troop sizes, it's developing better weaponry and capabilities. When we look at countries like Britain, they had a strong army, they had a formidable navy, and they needed all of that to be able to maintain their empire. Their navy had developed the Dreadnought class, which was a large naval ship that had firing capabilities, and this was in response to Germany's uh, development of the U-boat. Now, Britain had this sense of urgency of we better not be taken over by the Germans, and this really created the naval arms race. Now, for Britain, they were based on fear, not facts, because Britain always had a three-to-one ratio of naval capabilities over the Germans, but that fact didn't matter. It was their fear of being taken over by Germans' navy that really was a catalyst for an increase in this militarization. The other thing is, is that British citizens really viewed military service as a noble cause, and society uh, really romanticized military service. Soldiers were seen and revered for protecting the British Empire. Now, at the early start of the 1900s, um, Britain's military skyrockets. So in 1913, they have about 390,000 uh, troops ready to go to protect the empire. By 1914, that escalates to 1.4 million soldiers, and in 1916, they have 3.6 million soldiers um, that had been called up during World War I. For Germany, when they become a country in 1871, they are already a strong military. They had just won the Franco-Prussian War, so there's a lot of pride within the German military. From 1914 to um, 1918, they also skyrocket in military capabilities as far as troop sizes. They're going to start out with 800,000 soldiers, and by 1914, it's going to jump to 3.5 million. Now, I had already mentioned that Germany started developing uh, a navy, and all empires at this time, or all major powers at this time, are going to have a navy. What was so problematic for the Germans is that they were a landlocked country for the most part. They have small shoreline up there by the North Sea, 
And their empire wasn't huge, but you're going to build a navy to conquer more land. And because their waterfront property is shared by the North Sea, which is shared by uh, the British, this was really threatening to the British. And so that is going to start the naval's arms race between Germany and Britain. Culturally, German soldiers were also revered and supported and they were also had an alliance with the Austrian-Hungarian Empire, which also had a large army. Far as France goes, they're also increasing uh, their military spending. They went from 200,000 soldiers to 1.3 million soldiers in 1914. What this all shows is a rapid expansion of militarism. And these major powers do have the capability of starting a conflict if anything does happen. And so one misstep can be really problematic for these countries. And that is what we see play out in uh, the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand. Um, throughout the early 1900s, we see all major powers exponentially increasing their military spending. What this means that is there is a minor conflict, it can quickly escalate into something much bigger than anyone had expected. And that's where we're going to start transitioning into the alliance system. Now, the alliance system was created by Otto von Bismarck, and here he has two goals for creating the alliance system. Number one, he wants to prevent Germany from being surrounded by potential enemies because they are in Central Europe. The other thing that Bismarck wanted to do was to isolate France, and this was a political move that he wanted to utilize to ensure German power. We first start out with the alliance of the Three Emperors League. Now this is going to go from 1872 to 1887. This agreement was made between Germany, Austria-Hungary, and Russia, and it was created to prevent warfare over the Balkans. How ironic. Now this agreement, this treaty alliance, it's going to kind of diminish because Russia and Austria-Hungary do have continued contentions over the Balkans. And so what Bismarck does here is he creates the Dual Alliance of 1879. And this is an agreement between Germany and Austria-Hungary that if either one of them were attacked by Russia that they would step in to support the other country. At the same time, Bismarck also creates the Reassurance Treaty of 1887, and this is going to last till 1890. It was created as a way to prevent Germany um, from getting dragged into a conflict and try to keep peace between Germany and Russia after the Three Emperors League had been dismantled. Now we need to turn our attention over to the Triple Alliance. This is going to be an agreement between Germany, Italy, and Austria-Hungary. The reason why Italy joins the dual alliance to make the triple alliance is because Italy and France had some contentions over territories in Africa. And Italy felt that they needed to have some power and some backing, and Germany and Austria-Hungary were the most viable allies for the Italians. And with the creation of the Triple Alliance, that is the quote-unquote first team created for World War I. 
Now, because France is seeing what's happening on the continent of Europe, they're becoming a little insecure. They understand that they need to have an ally. Now, for France, they would have probably preferred Britain. However, Britain is in this era of splendid isolationism. Britain doesn't feel compelled that they need an alliance. And so France decides that, okay, who's going to be the most viable option for them for an alliance? And it's going to be Russia. And that's going to bring us to the Franco-Russian alliance of 1891 till 1917. Russia, they're going to join the Franco-Russian alliance because Kaiser Wilhelm II does not renew that reassurance treaty. So that makes Russia feel very vulnerable and insecure. France, they feel vulnerable and insecure. So that's why the Franco-Russian alliance makes just natural sense. Now, we need to move over to the Entente Cordiale of 1904. This is where France and Britain are now becoming increasingly concerned about German aggression. France and Britain had been strong competitors to create an empire um, on the continent of Africa. Um, they had been strong competitors for political power in Europe. And so they're becoming so fearful of Germany that they decide to put all of those issues aside and create this Entente Cordiale. Now, because we have the Entente Cordiale, we have this Franco-Russian alliance, this is going to create the Triple Entente of 1907. What this alliance does is it's a friendly agreement between those three countries of Britain, France, and Russia that if any of them get attacked by Germany, that they will also have the support to defend themselves against Germany. I also need to note that there is the Anglo-Japanese Alliance of 1902. This is where Britain is um, increasingly becoming concerned with German aggression, as well as needing to protect their trade routes over in Asia. And so Japan is going to be a good option for Britain. For Japan, the Anglo-Japanese alliance is going to be beneficial because they're going to get some validation of the fact that they're teaming up with the strongest empire on the planet. That's also going to bring Japan into World War I when Britain has to enter World War I because of the alliance system. There are some pieces of evidence that the alliance system would kind of detour conflict if anything actually happened. We kind of see that through the Moroccan crisis when Germany tries to contest French occupation of Morocco. Because of the Entente Cordiale, Germany decides in 1905 and 1911 that it doesn't want to go to war with Britain and France. So what they do is Germany kind of backs off and France gets to keep Morocco. Now, when the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand happens, this just exemplifies the effects that imperialism, nationalism, and the alliance system all had in this culmination of this event. And we'll get to that because it just amplifies this situation. The assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand really could have been between Austria-Hungary and Serbia. But because Russia was backing up Serbia and Germany was backing up Austria-Hungary, this all escalated into a global catastrophe. Because of uh, nationalism, um, 
we need to look at imperialism. Now, imperialism had been going on for quite some time. We can go as far back to the scramble of Africa in the 1870s. These European powers understood that imperialism could create some conflict. So that's why Otto von Bismarck hosts the Berlin Conference of 1885. Out of that conference, we get the Treaty of Berlin of 1885. And that set up some kind of ground rules for how Europeans would conquer the African continent. There is going to be um, some wars that take place during the scramble for Africa. You have the Anglo-Zulu War of 1879, where the British kind of need to get the Zulu tribe out of the way. That's going to lead us into the first Boers War of 1880 and 1881. Um, now, all of those things, the first Boers War, the Anglo-Zulu War, that happens before the Berlin Conference. These next events happen after the Berlin Conference, which just goes to show that European countries were more interested in protecting their own national interest and promoting nationalism than they were of uh, keeping the peace. So we have the Jameson Raid of 1895. That's where the British are going to try and take over an arsenal that is held by the Boers. And once again, the British are unsuccessful. What we have here with the Jameson Raid is an intensification of the German and British uh, competition. Kaiser Wilhelm II is going to send that congratulatory letter to the president of the Boers, Paul Kruger. What message Kaiser Wilhelm II is sending to the British is, I am against you, not for you. I'm really glad that you were not able to solidify your southern confederation of uh, African territories. So then that's going to lead us to the Second Boers War of 1899 to 1902. And that's where the British are going to just use incredibly harsh uh, measures to ensure their victory in the Second Boers War. But what that's going to do is it's going to isolate Britain. A lot of countries are seeing how aggressive Britain is becoming, and they aren't very happy about that. But you do note that the Entente Cordiale is formulated in 1904, and um, Germany is going to contest uh, how strong that Entente Cordiale is. And we see that with the first Moroccan crisis. Remember, this is where Germany is going to question whether or not France notified everybody that they were taking over Morocco because previously France had made a secret alliance with Spain that Spain would get a portion of Morocco and then France would get a larger portion of Morocco and Germany claimed hey you guys went against the Treaty of Berlin you didn't notify everybody that's also going to lead us to the second Moroccan crisis of 1911 where Germany is going to kind of float by the Moroccan coastline with some German U-boats. And what Germany is doing is testing that Entente Cordiale. But what we see is that imperialism on the continent of Africa is starting to spill over into the politics of Europe. And we see this Britain versus Germany dynamic in Southern Africa where when Germany starts coming into the African continent, it's kind of late in the game, um, but Germany is able to claim some territory in the southern region of Africa. And remember, Britain wants to try and have a complete control over the southern region, but because Germany shows up, 
Britain can't fully solidify their presence in the southern region of that. So there's just an extension of that competition. We also see a lot of competition in Asia. China is beginning to fall in power, and that's leaving them very vulnerable. Japan is also rising in power, and they're beginning to expand throughout Asia and the Pacific. And so all of this competition over China and their presence on the Asian continent is just intensifying that political fuel in Europe. For Japan, they actually participate in the first Sino-Japanese War. Uh, they need more natural resources. China has a lot of natural resources, and so we have that. There's the Boxer Rebellion of 1899 to 1901, and that is where the international community is going to uh, ensure their presence within China to protect their trade. By 1910, Japan just straight up annexes the entire peninsula of Korea and places Korea under direct control of Japan. Now, let's look at the Balkans. This particular area starts developing a lot of new countries as the Ottoman Empire is beginning to diminish in its power. And we have a lot of new countries that are being formulated, and most of the time new countries are very weak and vulnerable. And there is a lot of competition between Russia and Austria-Hungary over the Balkans. What ends up happening in 1908 is Austria-Hungary just annexes Bosnia and Herzegovina, which is supposed to go to Serbia. Serbia is very upset about this. We actually have the Balkan Wars of 1912 and 1913, but Austria-Hungary is able to solidify uh, their control over Bosnia and Herzegovina. With the Balkans being so unstable and vulnerable, this leads to a lot of political contention and rivalries over this area. The last component of the main long-term causes of World War I is nationalism. A lot of countries, including the major powers such as Britain, France, and Germany, had all been exerting their self-interest of conquering the globe, and they believed that they had a cultural, economic, and political superiority to the rest of the world, and that gave them the quote-unquote right to take over so many regions over the globe. So um, they're overconfident in their military capabilities. Britain has a strong navy. They have a very capable military. Germany is highly organized and trained. Russia has 1.5 million men on cue ready to go to war if need so. Nationalism was also leading to a lot of ethnic groups wanting their own nation states. So in Eastern Europe, they faced a lot of potential threats. A lot of Eastern Europeans were forced to speak Russian. A lot of the Slavic citizens in Eastern Europe wanted their own nations, and nationalism was incredibly strong in Serbia. Serbia wanted to be Serbian. Far as Britain goes, their nationalistic pursuit was that Southern Confederacy in um, South Africa. They had the naval arms race with Germany, like from the German perspective, why couldn't they have a navy? Like, everybody else had a navy. That was what you did if you were going to be a legitimate country developing overseas territories. So for Germany, they didn't understand why they were so, quote unquote, threatening if they wanted a navy. France had a navy. The United States had a navy. So there is that point of view. 
far as the Boers War, Britain was incredibly nationalistic. They used the scorched earth policy, they used concentration camps, all to ensure their victory. For France, they were trying to keep up with Britain. They wanted to protect themselves from Germany. So they did whatever they could do to stay relevant, stay competitive, and to ensure um, that they would not be threatened by Germany. For Germany, they really intensified their foreign policy under Kaiser Wilhelm II. He wanted to expand. He started the naval program, which challenged Britain. He backed up Austria-Hungary after the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand. And really, it was to gain political and economic power within Central Europe. Germany also develops the Schlieflin Plan, which stated that if Germany needed to go to war with France or Russia, that they wanted to prevent a two-front war, so they would attack France through neutral Belgium. That way they could do a quick victory there and then send the rest of their troops to Russia. So that was a nationalistic uh, military agenda which led to just an increasing conflict. And when that became publicly known, that just intensified France's fear of Germany's aggression. For Austria-Hungary, they wanted to take over more land, particularly in the Balkans. Russia, they want more land, particularly in the Balkans. Japan, they're expanding throughout the Pacific, throughout Asia. The United States, they're expanding their empire. So all of this imperialistic behavior is just intensifying and increasing uh, all of their nationalism pride and wanting to protect their own self-interest. So now we're going to turn our attention to the year 1914. Uh, this is when Archduke Franz Ferdinand of Austria-Hungary is going to be assassinated. This event really is a culmination of all of the events prior to 1914, and it's going to exemplify the main long-term causes of World War I. So for imperialism, you have the annexation of Bosnia-Herzegovina by Austria-Hungary in 1908. Serbia is hostile towards Austria-Hungary because of this, because it um, threatens their independence, their political and economic power in the Balkans. And Austria-Hungary, um, they are going to be down in Sarajevo. Archduke Franz Ferdinand is going to Bosnia-Herzegovina to inspect the troops in Sarajevo. And the Serbian terrorist group known as the Black Hand gets word of this, and they are going to assassinate the Archduke Franz Ferdinand. Once he is assassinated, all of those main long-term causes kind of explode in this situation. In regards to militarism, uh, every country's troops were prepared to move. They had the equipment, they had the technology, they had the troops on cue in case they needed to go to war. For the alliance system, Germany wrote a blank check to Austria-Hungary and said, we have your back. If you go to war with Russia or Serbia, we're going to be there. Russia, they're backing up Serbia. So that means that if Russia goes into war with Serbia, Germany might go to war with Russia, which means the Franco-Russian alliance has to take place, and then the Entente Cordiale. So that domino effect or I like to call it the barroom brawl of Europe, just kind of erupts over the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand. 
With imperialism, there had been a long-standing competition between Austria-Hungary and Russia in the Balkans, and ethnic groups were wanting their independence and nations, so that meant that there was a lot of contention between major powers and minor powers. With nationalism, Germany really wanted to just secure its spot as a main European power, and it could accomplish this through war. So if they were able to successfully defeat Russia, then that would just kind of send a stamp of, hey, we are powerful. Now, Russia, they're not wanting to look weak, and they need to protect their interest in the Balkans. So if a war breaks out, then they need to show up because they need to protect their status. And Britain and France, they're wanting to keep Germany in check because they don't want them to get too much power because they had been the longstanding political powers and economic powers within Europe. So with the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, it sets off a series of events that goes beyond anyone's comprehension of it going to be a global four-year conflict. Most people in July felt that, hey, this war is going to be over by Christmas. It's going to be easy, ready to go. What they soon and quickly found out is that this was going to be a catastrophic war whose legacy really does impact the course of the 1920s and 30s, and there's even some still lingering effects into the 21st century.